0: Hello, I'm Kristen Marshall, and that was the sound of the old Apianga line. It was a passenger train that used to come into this very railway station from where we're broadcasting tonight. It first started arriving here way back in 1894, or 125 years ago this year. So, in honor of that first train, we are launching a little weekly podcast that we affectionately call, you guessed it, the Apiango line. It will be available almost every Sunday evening throughout the year, and it will be dedicated to nothing more than investigating, preserving, and promoting that very unique culture and heritage associated with those good people who already lived or settled in and around the township of Madawaska long before 1894, and who have continued to come here long afterwards. In fact, they're still coming here, sometimes in trickles, sometimes in droves, but always welcome and yet always curious about what strange things they find here. Berry's Bay is now part of the township of Madawaska Valley, set along the western edge of Renfrew County and nestled among the upper reaches of the Madawaska River that originates in the world-famous Algonquin Park. But let me tell you, it's a very unusual place. It's been long considered the jeweled crown of Eastern Ontario. Indeed, that crown includes three well-known historic jewels, the oldest Polish settlement in Canada, just a hands race down the road in Wilno, the sunken remains of the Mayflower, one of Canada's most significant freshwater tragedies down near Combermere, and thirdly, this railway station in Barry's Bay, where we are tonight. It was built in 1894, but in 2019 remains the last such station of its kind, probably in all of Canada. It's certainly the last one standing of the original 30 or so such railway stations that were built by J.R. Booth in the 1890s when he launched his now defunct Ottawa, Arnprior and Parry Sound Railway. But this township of Madawaska has always been more than the sum of its parts, and certainly more than any one man or woman, even if that person was one of the great 19th century industrialists of Canada. Certainly, Barry's Bay has outwitted, outlasted, and simply played out more than a few commercial geniuses. That's probably because we're part of the Ottawa Valley, whose very name conjures up the type of character that has to be seen to be believed. Marshall McLuhan, the great internationally known Canadian media guru, once crowed about Canada not having a cultural identity. Well, as many people from the Ottawa Valley told him at the time, Mr. McLuhan, obviously you've never been in Renfrew County. Indeed, if there ever was a global village, an academic phrase Mr. McLuhan famously coined, Barry's Bay certainly must be it. So in celebration of our global village heritage that stretches back long before the coming of the first train in 1894, and will endure long after the world has forgotten about Marshall McLuhan, we are here tonight to tell you a little bit about our character, our history, and our cultural identity. Tonight, we'll start off our very own Apiango Readers Theatre as they perform right here in this old station in downtown Barry's Bay. Let's join them as they are about to get underway. Good evening,
1: I'm Heather Poliquin, and I'm here tonight with Lois LaSoul, Daniel Paul, Roger Paul, and Karen Yakabuski. We're all members of the Opiongo Readers Theatre and are all very happy to welcome you aboard the Opiongo Line from our new home, the old Barrys Bay Railway Station in the heart of the Upper (coughs) Mattawaska Valley. All thanks to the station keepers, a local volunteer, group who are revitalizing this grand old building originally constructed in 1894 and this year celebrating its 125th anniversary. It's the last of 30 such stations all part of the once famous Ottawa Armed Prior and Perry Sound Railroad that first connected Berries Bay to the rest of the world back in the late 19th century. Tonight we are celebrating part of that history as those railroad builders first began arriving here in Berry's Bay in the summer of 1894, there was already a handful of people living in what passed for the village of Berry's Bay. Jim Drohan was here, operating his little blueberry hotel. If you can call three or four small cedar shanties yoked together under a common roof, a hotel. The Ritz-Carlton, it was not. The blueberry stood across from an old blacksmith's shop, that had gone belly up for lack of business, or perhaps the evils of drink, We're not quite certain which. (laughs) And then there was Tom Murray's parents, Jim and Hannah Murray, who had moved in from Siberia about four miles out of town to a new farm just west of Drouin's Hotel. There were also people like Charlie Kitts, or as he was better known, Coal Oil Charlie. And there was his neighbour, Billy Martin, who opened up the first post office in Barry's Bay in 1878, atop Kitts Hill, or what we now call Mintha's Hill. Billy had grown up in England, working for the lords and ladies. Indeed, his sister, a chambermaid in a castle, ran off with the handsome son of the local lord. The pair eventually married, emigrated to Canada, and settled near Rockingham as Mr. and Mrs. John Watson back in the day. Of course, before the train tracks arrived in Barry's Bay, There was also Frank Stafford who had set up the first dry goods store here. And there was Wild Frank Dunn, who lived on Welshman Island and was a man about town who seemed hell-bent, intent to poke his nose in everyone's business, and sometimes not with the best intent, as we shall soon see. So it should come as no surprise that as the rail bed was being prepared for the new ribbon of steel that was soon to pass through Barry's Bay, the town fathers gathered together, and proposed building the first ever school in the little village. And of course, this meant they'd have to hire their very first school teacher. This all happened 125 years ago, this very week. But why not let the first school teacher tell her own story? And so she did back in 1955, inasmuch as she spoke with the town's roving reporter, Arthur J. Ritza, editor of the Barry's Bay Review.
2: Pioneer days in the valley were rough-hewn for people and things alike. Anyone who arrived in a gathering settlement with the ambition of trimming or smoothing shaggy surfaces certainly needed a dynamic personality and a venturesome spirit. It was only in the year 1894 that the settlers near the community now known as Barry's Bay got together sufficiently to organize a school section and construct a school. Heretofore the children studied only in nature's classroom or gleaned what knowledge they could from the fireside family chats or visits of neighbors. Scant interest was shown by some parents in the initial stages of school organization and only a devoted and preserving few who finally brought a school building into being. In our modern times a greatly increased population the percentage of those who show an abiding interest in school affairs is just as small. The appointments in the new school were indeed primitive. A few benches a blackboard, individual slates, and a scratch away. The big question which intrigued the majority was, who was to be the first teacher? Mr. William Billy Martin, the postmaster of the Barry's Bay Post Office, located on Kitts Hill, handled the clerical details for the board. A name was chosen from a list of graduates' teachers in Renfrew County, and an application dispatched. That is how Nellie Irving came to the locality to teach in the first public school. The girl was just 20 (coughs) years old, but as accomplished as she could be for those early days. She had studied in the Alice Township Grammar School under Richard Peaver and attended high school in Pembroke. Finishing there, she graduated from the Renfrew Model Training School with a teaching certificate. In the spring 1894, Miss Irving travelled by train from Pembroke to Cobden. Where she caught the stagecoach to Eganville and then Brudenell. Dan Smith was her driver. It poured rain all the way. The vehicle had no cover. The road was extremely rough, washed out in places, and uphill continually. Slowly they wound their way late that night to the uplands of Brudenell. Drenched and weary, the young girl rested at a stopping place there until the Afiongo Road stage for the remainder of the journey arrived from Renfrew. Josh Billings operated the Brutinelle to Bark Lake section of the Offiongo Road stagecoach line from his stopping place at Bark Lake. Another day of jolting and bounding from one rock to another until one's sides ached. Another day of silent, dripping, cold rain. Towards the evening, Mr Irving finally arrived and stepped down at the Barry's Bay Post Office on Kitts Hill, where she met Billy Martin and his family. The next day, which was Saturday, she was transported to the home of James Murray, father of Tom Murray, where she was to room and board. On Monday, May 14th, 1894, she opened the school. Sixty-one years later, in 1955, after that memorable day in the history of education in Barry's Bay, the first teacher amply demonstrated to me her clarity of mind and prodigious memory, at age 82. She was prepared to give me all the names of all the pupils who came to her class on that day in May back in 1894. Not to tie her unduly, I settled for the following originals. Tom, Frank and Charlie Murray, Michael, Tony and John Prince, Frank, Mike and Mary Coolis; Clara and Rose Kitts, the Ritzers, the Georges, the Bernakis, the Vancuskis and many others. As she told off the names of her former pupils, a nostalgic tenderness crept into her voice, and her eyes became misty in the remembrance. She quickly assured me that her days in school were very, very busy days, but as happy as they could be. I took advantage of the dramatic moment to lift the veil of the years so as to catch a glimpse of the distant past that followed this her first. And last, teaching assignment. I mentioned the fine old colonial house in which we sat on the shores of Trout Lake, and the restoration and embellishment which accentuated its original beauty. That house stands between Carson and Trout Lakes, an old landmark on the Opiongo Road, a road which exists today only in the memory of old-timers. The gentle old lady smiled happily, and with a vivacious toss of her head, announced to me, This is the house I came to as a bride, just 59 years ago. Here I am today, and just as proud of it as I was then. I married Nicholas Conway on June 8, 1896, and we moved into this our newly constructed house. Through the back window there, I can see the homestead of my father-in-law up the hill a little way. A few vignettes from life beside the old lumber trail came fleetingly into view, never a regret, but always in tones that bespoke a life of simple dedication, in weal and woe. How the happily married couple raised a family of eight boys and two girls, the struggle for a livelihood when the timber line receded, the grim silence that obtained on the Apiongo line when the railroad road supplanted it in the forest fastness of the Madawaska. The old Apiongo road is no more. The first school has also disappeared, and the first teacher has gone to join some of her former pupils, and her helpmate in life, in the land of the blessed. She did her part in the founding of education here in Barry's Bay and completed her task in the institution of a family, the unit of society.
1: Truer words were never spoken, or an arts case, printed in the Barrys Bay <coughs> Review. Local farm families, indeed, were the bedrock upon which this village was built. So time now to take a closer look at one of those founding families, the one belonging to James and Hannah Murray. They had left Drum, County Monaghan, Ireland, and settled first in Sealy's Bay, then in Nepean, by 1858, they had moved up the old Apiango Colonization Road to Brudenel and in 1864 moved again to Siberia, about four miles southwest of Barry's Bay. Finally, in 1889, they moved lock, stock, and barrel, not so much into Berry's Bay as into what would become Barry's Bay. Indeed, James Murray moved his family to a 50-acre farm just west of this station, about a mile out towards Cebulski's Lake. Listen now as one of James' sons, Tom, who was born in Siberia, recounts what farm life was like back in those pioneer days, only a few short years before his first school teacher arrived. In 1880, I was born out between Siberia and Greenland Lake in a little cedar shanty, 20 feet by 20 feet. There was one little window with four panes of glass in the south end of it. The door was in the east wall and it had a window there the roof was made of cedar scoops the floor made of hewed pine the year i was born my dad built a big new log house with three bedrooms my parents had one room the girls had one room and the boys had one room there were two beds in the boys room but only one bed in the girls room because there were only two of them our parents had the baby in their room in the living room There was a good stove with a pile of wood in the corner and a spare bed for a guest. For instance in 1885 we had a surveyor Frank Kerr from Eganville who had come up to do some work and so he slept there. He had to get up early in the morning so the rest of us could come out. That was the house we lived in until 1889. Then we moved to what would become Berry's Bay. My mother was a wonderful cook. The way she could cook an egg, fry pork, make gravy, she could make buns and I never saw anybody who could make donuts like she could. And bread. Sometimes we'd get half a dozen partridge and she'd make dumpling soup with them. My father kept about a hundred hens so we all slept in feather beds. The quilts with the feathers in them were homemade during quilting bees. In the mornings, we'd have pretty heavy meal my father always wanted to eat heavy in the morning so we'd have potatoes and pork or beef or mutton if we killed a sheep and at noon they'd have the same but before we'd go to bed we'd have oatmeal porridge and my dad would have his in a kind of thrash bowl with cream for light all we had were tallow candles you had to kill a fat sheep and render the tallow and then we use the candle rolls and make eight candles at a time each one eight to nine inches long. We used to drop the wick down the candle roll before spilling in the hot tallow, and it would cool and harden. My father was a fifth book scholar from up near the north of Ireland. He was an educated man, and he got a subscription to the Montreal Weekly Star. That was his Bible. It was a big newspaper, and he'd read it out aloud for all us children. He'd be sitting at one end of the table with a tallow candle and my mother at the other end, sewing or patching with another candle. I remember one time Jim Costello came out to buy cattle from us and stayed with us. McKinley, President of the United States, had just been assassinated. It was McKinley who had put a high tariff on sheep and cattle and it had affected our cattle and my dad would have quite a bit of political conversations with the Polish people, the Akabuskis in particular. They'd come in to see him and spend all Sunday afternoon talking to my dad about politics. He'd talk to them about what was going on in politics and talk about what was in the newspaper from all over the world. Sometimes during the week they'd stop by for tea. What I'd like to tell people was how we lived on the farm in the 1880s and the first half of the 1890s. There were no schools, no churches. The neighbors surrounding us were all Polish and their children all spoke Polish. We had only ourselves. There was only my Uncle Pat, who was the youngest Murray. He wasn't married, so he had no children to play with us, but he was on the farm south of us, and we could visit him. People might wonder how we put the time in. Well, we started to work when we were five or six years old. It would start in the spring when my father would begin plowing and harrowing. At that time, there was a lot of new land, and, and so a lot of stumps. They couldn't get up to the stumps with a harrow or a plow so it was up to us children to work around the stumps with a hoe. So we'd hoe up ground or mine the grain right around the stumps. That was our work when they were putting in the crops. In June they put in half an acre of potatoes and it was our business to keep the potatoes clear of bugs. We'd grab hold of them, put them in the dish and later scald them. My dad would have hired a man from time to time and they'd chopped down perhaps three or four acres of bush. We thought it was a great thing to see them cutting down the big trees. We wanted to see all the big trees falling. In July, the best month of all, we'd start mowing the hay and my dad always had a hired man helping him, cutting the hay with a scythe. I think the whittling of a scythe is the greatest music I ever heard. And the smell of the new mown hay and all the bugs and the birds and the bumblebees and that had their nests down on the ground with the mice while the wasps had their nests up in the trees, there were all kinds of blue jays and robins and different kinds of birds and some kind of big, inch-long bees. I don't know what they were, but they made a big noise going through the air. So amidst all the racket, we used to work raking up the hay that had been cut. And if the hay was heavy, we'd spread it out with a little fork so the sun could get <laughs> at it and that would last the whole month of July. And then we cut the grain with reaping hooks. When we were six or seven years old, we'd learn to use a reaping hook and cut our hands, but we'd keep at it, another job we'd do. Once they mowed the hay, the after grass would start and they'd let the cows in there. But it was up to us children to keep them cows out of the other grain fields that were still growing. In the fall, we'd have to dig potatoes then the thrashing would start and the flailing. We'd trash the peas and see the fanning mill and looking after the oats, sometimes wheat. My father used to do quite a lot of hunting in the autumn and we'd get interested in the shooting of the deer and help bringing them home. He used to get the deer skins tanned by the Indians and my mother would make deerskin mitts for us to wear in the winter. Sometimes she'd make 50 pair with just a needle and thread. She was a wonderful woman with a needle. When the snow came, my dad would make a trip to Eganville with his sleigh, and he'd buy about $150 worth of stuff. They'd make a list, and it would take him three days to make the trip there and back. One day to go down, one day to buy, and one day to come back. During the winter time, we had to draw the hay and oats to the lumber shanties. We'd load it in one day, and the next take it to the lumber camps. It was a long day but everybody was interested in what the load weighed and what our neighbors' loads weighed. Another job we had in the winter was to clean out the cow sheds. As spring came, there was a glorious period when we were making maple syrup. We had two big coolers and a small cooler and we made a big fire in the bush. The only other equipment we had at that time was a sap gauge. It was a sharp tool made by a blacksmith and we used to lend it around to other people. You drive it into a maple tree and it made two little notches above it and then you put in a wooden tap and attach a wooden trough made from a piece of nice white basswood about 15 inches in diameter. You chop two feet off of it right through the middle and then with adze gouge it out and the sap would fall into what we called a sap trough. Then we'd carry the sap pails from the sap trough to the cooler. There was one big maple, a grand tree that had so much sap running that we had to use a butter churn to collect it. It was a glorious period of the year making the maple syrup. We never made too much because we never sold any of it. Just enough for our own use. Sometimes my mother would put it on the stove, she'd boil it down to sugar. The real
3: education we got mostly came from our dad when he read from the newspapers. When I met Nellie Irving, the school teacher, that first time, I was nearly 14 years old. But I don't think I could read or write at that time. When I started school in May 1894, I began with the second book. Billy Kitts and George Martin had gone to the Barclay School the year before and were already in the second book. So I wanted to be in the same book as them. I had a terrible time for a while. I had to study hard and I had to stay at it. I only went to school about two months that year. But when old Scott, the school inspector, had come around, he told the teacher to put Frank Murray and Tom Murray in the third book. And they left the others in the second book. And so Billy and George quit right there. They didn't come back after that. When I came back the next year, I was in senior third, but I studied quite a bit myself at home. I was doing fractions, long division and short division. My father had told the teacher not to teach me history or geography. I got that at home. Just teach me reading and writing and arithmetic. So, eventually, I got the fourth book. There was always a lot of trouble at the schoolhouse, and Nellie Irving got into quite a lot of trouble herself. She was a great teacher, but she didn't know what was going on outside the schoolhouse. And the trouble outside was the fighting that was going on among the farm boys and among their parents. We didn't want to fight, but Mick Coolis, Frank Ritza, and the others, they were a lot bigger than me. And they were wanting to fight outside just for fun, apparently, and I didn't want to fight. So my brother Frank got into serious trouble, and Joe Prince and the parents got into it too. And so we had to quit school for a couple of months. That fall, when the railroad station was being built in 1894, the station manager and some of the others, who were all Protestants, sent their children to our school, a public school. And so, the teacher used to teach us catechism after hours because of the Protestant children. They made up only about 5 or 6 percent, but the Catholic children got along fine with them. So the Protestant children would stay after school and wait for us outside until catechism was over. They'd get to playing a game outside, and since they were from Kingston, it was often an orange game that included someone saying, Open the gates as high as the sky and let King William's men pass by. <laughs> we didn't know the difference, so we often played that game with them. Miss McNamara taught me for the last two months I was there in the fall of 1896. She wasn't near as good as Nellie Irving. The George's children were there and their parents were from Eganville and were friends with Miss McNamara and they got special privileges at school. The school was right on the other side of where the hospital is now right there between those two little creeks. It was a log school with about 40 pupils and only one teacher sometimes. All the girls sat on one side, all the boys on the other. A funny thing, I was a big boy, and the teacher put me up near the front, behind Tommy Retza, who was ahead of Felix Fankoski. Tom was seven years old and I was 16. And when Tom hit Felix a crack, boxing his ears, Felix would turn around and hit Tom back. But when the teacher turned from the blackboard, she'd only see Tom holding his, down his head, pretending to be crying. So she beat Felix for starting it all. <laughs> Tom was full of mischief. His father died when Tom was only 7 years old, but his father was 88 years old. (laughs) You'd be surprised how well the Polish children got along at school. They only spoke Polish at home, but my dad told Nellie Irving to be patient with the Polish children because many of them had no English. So when they came to the school for the first time, Some of them couldn't even say their names in English. So, Victoria Coolis became Maggie Coolis because somebody gave the teacher the wrong name. The same happened to Monica Prince, who got called Hannah. But it was remarkable how the Bleskys got on so well with English and so fast, both Felix and the girls. And Mick Prince... He was working so steady at his studies. I had a heck of a time to keep ahead of him. The school board included Billy Martin, Frank Dunn, Charlie Kitts, and my father James, the secretary treasurer. Two Protestants and two Catholics. But trouble was started by Frank Dunn. I was only 15 at the time but it was at one of the school meetings when the religious trouble started. My dad couldn't tolerate Frank Dunn, a real troublemaker. It was Dunn who started the separate school here in Barry's Bay and he wasn't even a Catholic. When that gang from Arn Pryor, the Bolans and the Dolans and the Georges came to town in 1894 They wanted to start a private Catholic school, a separate school. It started the Wednesday after Christmas in 1895. The four trustees made a signed agreement with Dunn, who then delayed the start of the regular public school meeting until 11 o'clock. But that morning, Frank double-crossed the school board, and he notified the gang to be there at 10 o'clock and they voted out the two Protestants' trustees and fired the Catholic teacher. McDolan and his gang then said, we'd have a separate school and we'd get a school grant. Frank Dunn just wanted to make trouble. He never even went to church. He was living on Masks Island They had moved down from Bark Lake where they had a farm just above Red McConway's on the old Opiongo Road. Two of the Dunns are buried up there. Both died of diphtheria. Old Bill Dunn, Frank's father, was an Englishman with an English brogue. But he was a worker who bought the island from the Actons. When Bill died, Frank paid more attention to making mischief than looking after his farm, and so he lost the island. Josh Billings was there for a while, then Abe White, and then Paul Mask bought it. The island really was first owned by a Welsh nobleman. He and his wife used to go horseback riding all through the bush because they were taught how to ride in the old country. So, Dunn had a big school meeting, and I paid my $2. I was only a young fellow, and some of the Protestants were there. And so, they opened a separate school board in the 1st of January, 1895, and they did get the grant. And then they built that separate school with one teacher on a corner lot here in Barrys Bay. But the Catholics still controlled the public school because the Polish were still the big majority in the public school. My dad was a very agreeable man. He was no bigot. There were no priests around at all. I saw my first priest when I was ten years old. At Phil Kulis's I saw that big fellow, Father Dowdle. A few years later, I saw Father Dowdle and Father Ryan, who came up for the Easter duty with the new Polish priest from Wilno, Father Jankowski. They came up and had an interpreter with them. Father Dempsey had come to Joe Prince's when I was three years old, and he said mass at Joe Prince's in that old scooped house, but I didn't go. And Father McCormick had been up to Pat Murray's when I was only two years old. They said I was there, but I can't remember. They said Father McCormick was an awful hard man to cook for. They said he was an Irishman and he died young, at 55. A big, good looking man. As far as church was concerned, we were well brought up. There was no quarreling at our house, never a bad word spoken. And even after we moved here in 1889 from Siberia to what would become the village of Barry's Bay, when Bill Kitts and them other fellows started their tough talk, we didn't understand it. One time, Barclay Kerwin and Bill O'Malley came looking to buy some oats from my father and they started to sing a song. And so we went into the schoolhouse the next day singing the same song. Nellie Irving told our sister it had a bad meaning. We didn't understand such things at all. Of course, when it came to swearing, we knew Curse and Pete Prince, who used to swear when he was talking to my dad. There wasn't much church. We never, hardly at all, went to Wilno when we lived on the old farm. But there were prayers. I remember my brother Charlie and I walked on Easter morning one time to Wilno down the railroad track about a mile an hour, but that was later on when we were older. The Polish church had been built in Siberia in 1896 and Father Jankowski, the Wilno priest, used to come up and say mass there. Father Jankowski used to preach there for two hours till one o'clock in the afternoon. We used to go there on Sundays, but at home we were taught lots of prayers. My parents were strict in a way, you had to say your prayers, there was no darn swearing or tearing around. The first Catholic church in the village of Barry's Bay was built in 1897 and was looked after by Father French from Brudenell, a great big strong man, a famous football player. He was quite a fighting man. Once a fight started at a picnic in Brudenell among the Malones and the Gatzes, Father French says, let's go, we'll stop it. And he did, by gosh. Once they built the church here in 1897, about a year later, in 1898, we had a mission preacher, a big man from Glengarry, Father MacPhail, came up here. I remember he got up and looked at us and said, Fear not, I bring you tidings of great joy. Then he got talking on the liquor question, and I was sitting right beside Red Mick Conway, and the priest was going on about the abuse of liquor and giving examples of young men who were abusing and abused by liquor. Red Mick kept giving me the elbow, saying, He's right, he's right. (laughs) The priest then started talking about prostitution and told us all, young man, don't let your guard down. And of course, Red Mick would poke me again, saying, he's right, he's right. (laughs) When I was down in Killaloo once seeing a girl, Father Isaiah French made everybody over 18 years old stand up in the church and they all had to take the pledge for a year. But the Killaloo Hotel was run by a good Irish Catholic who, after Mass, went down, opened the bar on Sunday, and made it a rule that every time you took a drink, you had to take the pledge. (laughs) (laughs) They tried to do the same thing with dancing, saying it was a mortal sin. But the funniest thing of all was that when John Harrington and Bill Dooner who were both going through to become priests, used to go up to Black Met Conway's where there was dancing and a big party every Saturday night. I wouldn't go to a dance back then. In the Diocese of Pembroke, dancing was condemned. It was the only diocese where it was. But then when John Harrington got through for priests, they broke that rule and had public dances at Mount St. Patrick for two dollars a piece. And the women would make pies and they'd have a real dancing feast. And at the O'Grady settlements, they had wonderful dances with the Daly's and O'Grady's and the Doyle's and
1: the Malone's. Talk about the good old days. Mind you, it was not all fun and games, even if you were occasionally kicking up your heels at a local barn dance under a harvest moon. There were serious consequences for brushing shoulders with the devil's work. And apparently, the devil loved nothing more than fiddle music, for as Tom and Nellie were often told here back in 1895, there was no greater occasion for sin, at least in Renfrew County, than when moved towards a dance floor. So here's another story often told among Nellie Irving and Tom Murray's families, even to this day.
4: Nellie Irving did not have an easy time as the first school teacher in Berries Bay. She arrived in May 1894, with barely two months left in the academic year to begin the school year. Still, for the next two years, she came back each autumn from her parents' home in Alice Township near Pembroke. What exactly happened during those two years and two months that Nellie Irving taught in Barry's Bay perhaps is best left to the fog of history. What we do know, however, is that she was involved in not one, but two of the strangest moments in local municipal politics that have long remained part of our storytelling tradition. One of them has already been alluded to, The story of Frank Dunn's famous Boxing Day coup d'etat when he took over the Sherwood Public School Board as a non-Catholic attempting to set up a separate school board. It was probably the first and last time such a feat was attempted and yet successfully accomplished in Ontario education history. The second wild tale involving Nellie Irving is possibly less well known though Tom Murray does hint at it when he mentioned how the Diocese of Pembroke had made dancing a mortal sin. You see, Nellie Irving was wild about dancing, long before she became a teacher, and, if the truth must be known, and it must, long afterwards— And so it is with great aplomb we relate the rich tale of how Barry's Bay's first public school teacher was almost sent to hell in a handcart by her Catholic bishop. The old tale goes something like this. After Nellie had been teaching for some time, the Sherwood Public School Board, presumably after they had rid itself of Frank Dunn, got back to being themselves two agreeable Catholics and two agreeable Protestants. They actually got along quite well, or as they say around these parts, they got along like a house on fire, which to the uninitiated simply means they remained good friends and neighbors. In the middle, of course, was sweet little Nellie Irving, who was still boarding at the home of the Sherwood Public School Board Secretary-Treasurer James Murray. But somewhere during Nellie Irving's two-year-plus career at Sherwood Public, the board decided they needed to raise a little more cash, possibly for their teacher's salary, possibly for some schoolhouse expansion, or, as one wag on the board suggested, possibly for a bull to increase the local herds. Whatever the reason, the school board decided to put on a bit of fun and frolic at the Sherwood Public Schoolhouse. Perhaps it was a box social. If it was June, perhaps a strawberry social. If September, perhaps a harvest dinner, complete with all manner of freshly baked blueberry pies, sweet relish preserves, wild game, roast beef, pork and beans, mutton, or even something more exotic, such as Hannah Murray's famous Honey Donuts. Whatever it was intended to be, it was definitely not to be a dance, If only because the teacher and two of the school board members were Catholic, and heavens to Betsy, they all knew the Bishop of Pembroke considered dancing a mortal sin. Then again, perhaps light musical entertainment was still possible, given that one of the better fiddle players in the area at the time had been invited. He was a strapping young farmer in his mid-twenties otherwise known as Red Mick Conway's second oldest son, Nicholas. And he happened to be, as they put it in these parts, an eligible bachelor. So there was handsome young Nicholas, perhaps a bit shy, with his fiddle case tucked discreetly away at some distance back in his wagon. And there was sweet little 20-something Miss Irving, the single young school teacher flitting about, trying to keep all manner of board members happy, their wives happy. All the men folk happy, if not her students themselves. One suspects that perhaps she also might have caught the occasional glance at that young restless fiddler, possibly whistling a tune to himself as he waited in the wings while trying to avoid the sin of tapping out the beat with his right foot. Whatever the case, the school event went off without a hitch. That is, until someone started to speculate. To wit, if Nicholas and some of his musical friends might not strike up his merry dance band and perhaps favor us all with a little light musical entertainment. Nothing sinful, mind you, just a song or two, something for the ear, nothing really dance-worthy. Someone else then wondered out loud if whether or not anyone present might consider such music perhaps sinful and Perchance, informed the bishop's palace of the school board's seemingly good intention to pave its own road to hell. Much discussion ensued, while Nicholas and his fellow fruit-juice jar-drinkers got somewhat impatient, and soon struck up more than a few chords near a place inside the schoolhouse that might possibly be construed as a dance floor. As time passed, the late afternoon slowly and merrily turned into a cool, beautiful evening, and so too did any fear of ever being found out. Certainly, Frank Dunn was not present, nor would he have held much truck with dancing being much of a mortal sin. And certainly, nobody could spot anyone in the crowd who wasn't Irish, Polish, or an enthusiastic, toe-tapping Protestant. Besides, according to Frank Dunn, the latter were already going to hell, so what more could they possibly lose by tripping the light fantastic? So whatever happened, happened. Suffice it to say, a good time was had by all. And from all accounts, the necessary money was raised, the local cowherds soon multiplied as if magical loaves and fishes. And so the school board went home happy, the parents went home happy, the students went home happy, and most of all, Mrs. James Murray went home very happy, for she saw that her young, sometimes lonesome boarder, Miss Nellie Irving of Alice Township, had acquired a noticeable new spring in her step. Decidedly, Nellie would also be forever known as not only an excellent and enthusiastic teacher, she would from thenceforward gain an unsullied reputation far and wide as an excellent and enthusiastic dancer. And more particularly, it became well known that she had found a certain fiddler to her liking when it came to making music. And based on the merry glint in the eye of that fiddler, word along the Alpiongo Road soon spread of a budding romance. Still, whether it was Frank Dunn or Frank Stafford or some other Frank, words were said, letters written, telegrams sent, and one day the woeful tale of a possible mortal sin had gotten back to the ear of Bishop Lorraine ensconced in his Pembroke Palace. Whereupon, after dogmatic consideration, the good bishop sent for both Mr. James Murray, secretary-treasurer of the Sherwood Public School, and his possibly wayward charge, one Miss Nellie Irving. Both were known to be good Catholics, and according to the great spiritual powers that be in Pembroke, both may now be in serious jeopardy of losing their immortal souls to the mortal sin of dancing. Duly summoned, the secretary treasurer and toe-tapping teacher presented themselves in the bishop's palace in Pembroke. What exactly transpired during their meeting with Bishop Lorraine has never officially come to light, as it was never fully reported upon by the papal nuncio. What is known is that there was frank talk of excommunication. Sundry references to burning in the pits of hellfire, repeated mentions of that loathsome and immoral practice of dancing, and finally, an ominous order that if either party ever darkened the doorway of the bishop's palace again, they would find themselves on the short end of a very long and withering stare from the bishop himself. And that stare, if it did not kill their spirit, would certainly maim their earthly happiness for an eternity and a day. Apparently, no words were spoken on the long buggy ride back to Barry's Bay. Still, some time later, the fiddle player did marry the first teacher ever to come to Berry's Bay, and though we have no proof to the contrary, we are told by reliable sources within the extended Conway families that both Nellie and Nicholas lived happily ever after, if only because they were known on occasion to frequent Mount St. Patrick and the O'Grady Settlement. Indeed, even as late as 1955, Art Ritza, roving reporter for the Barry's Bay Review, noticed that Nellie, even aged 82, still loved to look with Wander out her back window and up the hill towards what she told Mr. Ritza was her father-in-law's old homestead. But we all knew her gaze was solidly framed on the famed location of Black Mick Conway's Saturday Night Dance Party. But no one in Barry's Bay nor the entire Conway family, however, has ever admitted <coughs> that the mortal sin of dancing occurred at the fundraising event.
5: Far
1: be it from us to cast aspersions on poor Nellie and Nick for wanting to kick up their heels occasionally, though it's well known that throughout much of the 20th century, Nick's <coughs> brother, Black Mick, did indeed run quite the stopping place at the top of the hill, just up from where Nellie Irving settled down to married life and began raising their 10 children. Many a Saturday night, good time was had by all, up at Black Mix, four miles out of town, or exactly the official distance required to operate a non-compete liquor license from Joan's Motel at the center of Barry's Bay. And apparently, in the old Conway family (coughs) archive, there are still plenty of receipts to prove the purchase of hundreds of gallons of high wines or pure alcohol used to mix with fruit juice lemonade or iced tea it was once a staple in these parts I'm among many of the old stopping places that were frequented by hundreds of shanty lumberjacks working near by through the winters still life for Nellie irving down by the shores of trout lake was not nearly as wild as life up on top of the hill where Black Mick ran his Saturday night dances. In fact, in our last tale about our first school teacher, Nellie's dancing days are done. All she has left are her memories and the attention of a small boy, not quite four years old,
5: one of her many grandsons. My memory of Tom Murray usually begins with driving him to church on a sunny Sunday morning. Back in those bright, breezy summer days in the 1970s, when he was in his early 90s, he would often mention some notable, such as Sir John A. Macdonald or Sir Wilfrid Laurier, and then tell me a story of how he had read about them in the newspapers when they were still alive, or how he had once seen them in person. I knew Tom was 11 years old when Sir John A died and nearly 40 years old when Sir Wilfrid Laurier passed away so it was all very possible and curious to think of Tom Murray as living history brushing shoulders with the great and famous at least in Canadian politics. With Nellie Irving it is the exact opposite. My memory of her usually centers on a dark, stormy night in the dead of winter. I must have met her on other occasions, but I remember her mostly through one very curious Saturday night, early in 1958. It involved nobody of great fame, though her sister would turn out to be Shania Twain's great-grandmother. But on that seemingly ordinary winter evening, Nellie Irving became a unique catalyst for my entire life. And it's a memory strangely vivid, given that I was not yet four years old, while she was a few months past her 84th birthday. On most Saturday nights during that winter of 1958, my father, Francis J. Conway, would drive my three older, school-age brothers and myself to Nellie Irving's farmhouse, four miles west of Barry's Bay. All the men, folk, and boys would then sit in the front parlor, as it was then called, in almost complete darkness, except, that is, for the snowy flicker of my Uncle Lorney's new black-and-white television set. Lorney and my father were desperate to watch Hockey Night in Canada, with either Foster Hewitt bombasting about the chances of the Toronto Maple Leafs, or Danny Gallivan cannonading about the above-average possibilities of the Montreal Canadiens. But the TV reception in the Barry's Bay area back then was next door to pathetic. which is why I, at four years old, didn't last much past the beginning of the first period, before losing complete interest in watching televised snow infrequently interrupted by a hockey game. So I wandered out of that riven darkness to the well-lit farmhouse kitchen where my grandmother, Nellie Irving, was sitting in her rocking chair, quietly darning my uncle's socks all by her lonesome. Slowly rocking back and forth she often hummed an old Irish air softly as she worked her magic with darning needles. Or else she simply smiled lost in some memory while absentmindedly making a metallic swishing sound with those needles. But when she heard me approach she would smile broadly and looking up Flashed the brightest, warmest old eyes possible. I would never run towards her, for I knew she was frail and old and might break if I hugged her too hard. Strangely, I also remember not wanting to do so. That's not how we were brought up. As a child, I knew I was supposed to be reserved, seen but not heard there but never rambunctious indoors when in the presence of an adult, especially one of her age. So I walked on hurriedly towards her and stood quietly by her left side, trying to squeeze shyly as best I could in between her stilled rocking chair and the kitchen table at my back. Carefully, she puts the darning needles down on her lap And with her left hand free, she pulls me to herself and gently hugs me. My flopping hands brush awkwardly against her black sateen dress, its floor-length hem tipping her black shoes. It makes me wonder if she might not be a nun. I look towards those tight black cuffs, encircling her tiny wrists, and see the back of an old white hand, agile, but with a road map of brown spots, taut tendons and dark veins beneath her semi-transparent skin. Next, I feel her other hand on the back of my head and am smothered into her black shiny collar gathered at her throat under a thin weathered face with high cheekbones and wayward wisps of rich white hair done up to look more voluminous than it was. I get squeamish as my right ear now rests along the nape of her neck in what feels like a warm hug from a teddy bear until all becomes silent, that is, except for a pulse somehow throbbing in my ears. Curiously, I inhale a faint scent of lavender water that was as subtle then as it is memorable now. Suddenly, all becomes right with the world. On her far side, there is a towering black wood stove with huge rounded panels of light green and almond enamel overhead. She had long ago tamed that strange iron beast and had learned to make her famous cinnamon buns that she would feed me one after another with huge dollops of melting butter. On that same stove sits a large coffee pot of speckled green enamel, forever ready with a gallon of green tea for any one of a dozen unexpected guests she always expected. Behind me stands her cherished kitchen table, the heart and soul of her life during the previous 62 years. It is there I imagined, never having seen him, Nicholas J. Conway, Nellie's dearly departed husband and my maternal grandfather. Somewhere, I reasoned, he must have sat at that table, perhaps beside his youngest child, my father, though I could not then imagine my father as a child. That old farmhouse table fascinated me with its fresh white linen tablecloth covered completely by a stale brownish yellow plastic protector spread out towards the back wall of the kitchen where stood an old manual Singer sewing machine set between two windows curtained off with floral prints. Sometimes Nellie let me play with that old fossil with its grated black iron foot pedal about 12 inches square It was giddy how much fun I could get using it not as a sewing machine, but just making that foot pedal flip-flop back and forth with my tiny hands and scraped knees to power whatever in God's name was happening above. I don't remember any of our conversations, but I do remember the sound of Nellie Irving's voice. A sweet voice caught somewhere between a soft whistle and loud whisper. It remains eternally warm and somehow Irish, or what I thought a leprechaun might sound like, though neither of us had ever met a leprechaun or had visited Ireland. It was a voice always on the verge of breaking into an irrepressible laugh. She loved to laugh, and I never once had a moment's thought when I heard that laugh that her life was not a happy one, nor that it would not last forever. Yet I knew next to nothing about her life back then. I did not know that in 1894, she had left home as a young girl of 20 and had come to Barry's Bay as its first school teacher, nor that two years later, she married a young farmer, my grandfather, who left her a widow in 1936 with 10 grown children including five who eventually married teachers, or that Nellie Irving herself would be gone forever in a matter of weeks. Still, on that cold winter's night in 1958, she and I had not a care in the world, nor a thought for the past, nor the future, only for the moment at hand. At the time, I was the youngest son of her youngest son. Intuitively, we knew that in our shared blood there was some mystical bond between us, that our fates were forever bound up in her son, my father. So she had a certain joy about my life that I had not yet discovered, and a desire for my future that I had no way of yet knowing. I could see it in her eyes and yet I knew it was more than just a grandmother's natural kindness. There was an insatiable curiosity about her, as if she was desperate to see what might happen, if only she could live long enough, to see, as I suspect, that I might one day grow up, as with all her grandchildren, and find that rare courage that she had to not only embrace the world for all that it could give back to us but more so for all that we could give to it and especially to all those whom she loved. She was not somebody who could sit still or stay quiet for long, and of course neither could I. And so, even though she was 84 years old, on that night I thought of her as my equal another child at heart who loved to be with other children, and who I knew could do what all children do so well, live in the moment without a care. So on that dark, snowy Saturday night, we were perfect company for each other. I made her feel as young as she was at heart, and she allowed me to be as old as she knew. Someday I would become. In a way, we were simply two ageless children knocking about aimlessly, just looking to have fun. Suddenly, she reaches over behind me and from her kitchen table hands me a bowl of peppermints. After devouring a few of them, we stand up, her more slowly than me, and she takes me by the hand to a gray galvanized pail Set on a stand beside the front door. She had no running water in her farmhouse and only recently had my uncle installed electricity, if only to watch whatever snow passed for hockey night in Canada. Near that front door, Nellie gets me to stand on a chair and I glance out the window to the veranda where I hear the wind wailing and lashing about. There is no moon, only shadows skittishly flickering along the grey snow-drifted veranda lit by a single new porch light. She scoops up a dipperful of cold water from the pail. One after another we drink face to face then quickly inhale deeply, madly, truly. Instantly each of us feels the giddy effect of a cooling breath swabbing over our peppermint tongues. Just as quickly, we both go bug-eyed and explode laughing like there is no tomorrow. I know now it was the sort of thing that only a great teacher would do, a wonderful teacher, forever showing a child how the real world sometimes works in very silly ways. It was something only Nellie Irving could do for the imagination of a little boy thoroughly bored with some new thing called television. Once I was such a boy who could not know he had only a few weeks left with his grandmother but that he had already learned everything worth learning from Nellie Irving about how to embrace small insignificant things that happen to us in this world truly madly, deeply, and with such things are essential and to our very own unique selves. They sometimes allow us to hold in our own very hand the salt of the earth, if only for a memorable moment or two. In truth, all that I have remaining of Nellie Irving is that peppermint moment from that winter night in 1958, yet When I think of her, I smile, not unlike how she once smiled to me, knowing that it's an old Irish custom to cherish outstanding, courageous, fun-loving elderly women, not by calling them by their married names, but by calling them instead by their maiden names. I honestly never knew Mrs. Nicholas J. Conway. I only knew Nellie Irving. And when I knew her, she was the same wonderful young teacher that Tom Murray knew that first time he famously met 20-year-old Nellie in that first schoolhouse of Barry's Bay. And Tom knew a lot of famous people. Time now to let Nellie Irving go
1: to her well-deserved rest, and time too to let you go out into the cool night air and dream of a time long ago when Nellie and Nick waltzed up the old Opiongo road, happily singing an old Irish air. Tonight's show was performed by Lois LaSalle, Daniel Paul, Roger Paul, Karen Yakabuski, and myself Heather Poliquin. Special thanks to the families of Art Ritza and Nellie Irving's grandchildren, especially Sean Conway who conducted the original 1973 interviews with Tom Murray that produced his memoir of his pioneer days and his days at the school with Nellie Irving. Tonight's show was produced by Barry Conway. A very special thank you to the station keepers for providing us with our new home. We hope to have many more nights here preserving our culture, our heritage, And thanks to the good people such as yourselves who have come out to support the station keepers efforts to revitalize this wonderful old railway station, the last of its kind. If you'd like to help out or show your appreciation for the station keepers, don't be shy when you pass Philip the donation jar on your way out the door. Good night and good luck.
0: There you have it, our first Apiango line. Won't you join us next Sunday evening for another show that promises to tell you just a little bit more about your very own, if not only, global village on the world wide web. For all of us here in Berry's Bay, in our 125-year-old railway station, or what we like to call the hub of the universe, I'm Kristen Marshall. Good night and good luck.